I think we're all set to do that. So I can start off and give kind of an introduction um, to to this episode number two or whatever it is. Um, and so how I came across this idea and where why I am here today uh, is somewhere because of Alex. And I kind of met Alex last semester in college and we just kind of started talking about this idea that Alex was going on around talking about to some people. Uh, and I found it really fascinating yet confusing and pretty radical at the same time. And that's why I was kind of excited. And then we kind of spoke for, for a couple of months or more than a couple of months, uh, just chatting about this idea and trying to understand the depth of it. And once I saw it, once I kind of understood it, it, it just blew my mind. And I was super motivated to do something about it. And so uh, on one hand, we were, we've been thinking about what are some solutions to, to bring this idea to life. Um, but since I realized that it does take quite a lot of effort and resources that we don't have right now with us, uh, I thought a podcast might be a good idea because, I mean, all of us are chatterboxes. We love talking about these ideas and it's the easiest way to, you know, get the conversation started and something stirring. And I've been interested in creating a community around this. Um, and Alex had this, this name. He came up with this name, Utopia is now, um, which I was very, very inspired by and, and thought that it might be a good idea to create a community and podcast around this. And so I'm very interested, or, or like, if, if Alex, if you could speak a little bit to uh, explain to Xavier and whoever else might be listening, uh, how you came up with this idea, what's your story, who are you, and then what brings you here today? Yeah, um, I first want to say thank you for having me, because I think this is a great initiative. And um, this idea particularly, it was it kind of came through, it's not something that I made up or anything. It's, it's kind of like a concept that was slowly generated um, as I was studying in college. And it really happened during the summer session last year, so 2019. Um, I was just alone and uh, there was nobody in Boston in the summer. So I was just going to class, reading my economics books, and I was so immersed in it that um, I started really to think about how can we create systems that are more efficient than the systems that we have right now? And in truth, it's not, we, we, we compartment, compartmentalize everything into like categories. So there's the people that study economics, there's the people that study other social studies, but really everything is really similar. And, and what I ended up, the conclusion that I ended up reaching was that efficiency in systems is quite, is quite the same for any kind of system. You just need to adapt it to their own environment. And, and so as I was trying to figure out efficient systems, I, I was trying to contact people and that's when I met you, Sasha. So um, that's, that's where we are right now. We're, we're trying to figure out exactly how can we define this efficiency within systems? How can it be applied in different environments? And how can we work towards it? Because it's a very big idea and, and there's little, little points where we can start off, but really it's, we need a lot of capital and, and a lot of uh, human minds to, to develop something like this, but it would be really, really interesting. So in connection to that, how, how do you see this concept of utopia in connection to this system that's more efficient? And, and uh, in that case, why do you say that utopia is now? Before that, what is utopia? And, and then yeah, <laughs> we're jumping really, really ahead. Um, but yeah, before that, I mean, utopia is meant to be a perfect version of society, right? It's meant to be like, what you have right now, can you imagine it being perfect? Can you make a linear projection in which it develops into a kind of like singularity, super, super efficient kind of society? So in the past, they used to think of, of utopia and they would see like 
huge skyscrapers and like flying cars, which I'm not sure is like that efficient anymore. <laughs> but definitely it's kind of like so far ahead that you're not there yet. Well, what's, what's happening with, with society right now, and I, I, think, I think this is what's interesting, is that we can see kind of like the seeds for a ultra kind of super powerful society for in the future. Uh, we, we can see that in the development of AI. We can see that in the big efforts that are being put in big data, in the developments of batteries and, and energy storage, and as well as energy creation um, with, with all the new renewable energy systems that, that are being generated. So within that, <clears throat> I think that that is only on the technological side. Um, it really gives steps to thinking about, okay, so if we go down this line, like how is the world gonna be like? And then there's only two conclusions, utopia or dystopia. Either you think that the world is gonna be amazing or you think that the world is gonna be like, like in the iRobot movie, kind of like uh, a super technological dystopia. And um, that's, that's usually the, the, the trends that people have when imagining the future. But I think, I mean, my opinion is more kind of like on the balance. I don't think it goes extremely on, on one side or, or the other. But uh, it's, it's interesting for me to see that right now in, in the world that we're experiencing right now and the changes that we're seeing right now, they're kind of like little seeds for what it should be. You know, social movements in democracy. Um, uh, we're seeing a, a revolution in, in the health system and international laws also um, and international trade and even in finance, you know, stocks and, and company valuations is, is being given a, a rethought, a rethink. And that is... The changes that we're seeing today is the changes that they were praising for in the 60s and 70s and maybe even 50s. Um, people like Walter Wilde and, and amazing writers that they were calling for, for, for action and for change. That change is happening right now. So I think it's really exciting. And I think that when I try to project what utopia could be, um, I see the changes that are happening right now just more, more baked, more exacerbated. So Xavier, do you want to play the devil's advocate and challenge some of those those ideas? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm, I'm bursting at the seams. <laughs> um, I think I, I couldn't agree more with a lot of what you're saying. And I think the general sentiment of why we all here is very similar, which is there's all this radical change that is occurring. And if we take a big picture view, um, we can see that this is changing to something that where the dynamic is slightly different to where I guess where it is or where it, where it could be. Um, but the question I had, and this is just a fundamental question of, of dystopia and utopia, which is, I think we can all agree that um, at the moment, things such as climate change or um, issues such as environmental issues um, are at a place where if we don't act at a certain point of time, there may be a certain tipping point that creates a dystopia, right? So I think there was a documentary I was watching the other day. I think there was something along the lines of if we don't change the amount of carbon net carbon emissions by around 2030 or something, we'll hit a tipping point in the amount of the, the global temperature that will kind of cause cataclysmic events. So I guess is acting or seeking a utopia too long-term when we have to act within maybe the next 15 years to, or make even the next 10 years to make a change? Um, shouldn't we be more short-term? Why do we have to be in the long-term? Because maybe that will be too late. Yeah, um, it's interesting that, that, that you say it this way, kind of like, why are we looking so much in the long term? Because it's true, like, why are, what's the point if we live day by day? And um, I think that looking in the long term is not necessarily 
planning for the long term because we don't really know what's going to come for the long term. But it's more doing a linear projection, which is 100% going to be wrong of what is happening day by day today. Um, and we tend to do that a lot by humans. Uh, there's this amazing writer you might know is Steven Pinker. He's a cognitive scientist at Harvard. And he, he always writes about how we make the, the truly terrible mistake of making linear projections on everything that we do when it is never like that. Never, ever, ever. The only thing linear is the progress of um, chips and their size. Um, CPUs, basically, which is, I don't know, it's, it's kind of a, a crazy idea to me. Um, but uh, yeah, so talking about the tipping points, that is strictly related to linear projections. You know, if, if you do a linear projection on how CO2 emissions are happening right now, we find this tipping point, we're going to see um, levels that are way too high that are going to start a um, chain of, of reactions, which we're never going to be able to stop, and it's great, bigger than our powers. And that would probably cause us to be forced to leave Earth and, and to suffer great amounts of damage and maybe even, you know, try to restart humanity somewhere else and we don't even know where. So, so that would be horrible and, and it is definitely something that worries me. <laughs> I can't say that I'm not worried by, by, by this stuff, but um, I, am, I am quite um, calmed down when, when I read about the, the recent advances that we've been doing. So, that the biggest change, now that we're speaking about climate change, that the, the biggest evidence in that humanity is always improving and we're always moving forward, what makes me think, what makes me be positive about our possible future is um, the Paris Agreement. I, in, in, in the area of climate change, it's really the Paris Agreement. Because before the Paris Agreement, we were seeing every time worse and worse projections. And obviously, when, when you're given a linear projection, and, and they say, you know, if, if we keep it going by this, by 2030, we're going to reach the tipping point. That, that is obviously in the worst case. There's obviously the, 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 the maximum projection. Um, but it's still possible. So, so, so we should give it a try. And these maximum projections were every time getting closer. You know, they were saying 2100, then 2050s, then 2030s or, or 40s. And, and now I hadn't heard 2030s up until like two years ago. Um, when, when they really started moving on with the, with the Paris Agreement. And what we've seen with the Paris Agreement is a huge change, not so much in the U.S., uh, but that is a debatable country, but a huge change in the maximum polluters of the world, which is China, which, um, given their bizarre um, government structure, nobody thought it was going to be possible. Nobody thought that um, some of these countries were going to reduce their CO2 emissions. And if we got them on track, and we got them to do this huge, uh, I mean, I forgot the numbers right now, but, but their CO2 emissions have been reduced like so much. They've been giving them, um, so much incentives to companies to use renewable energy and install solar panels, which is also debatable. Everything is kind of debatable in this area. But uh, I, I see a big, a big um, movement forward. And more than ever, I see motivation to do this, which, you know, 20 years ago, you, you talked about it and, and people would look at you strings they would be like okay greenie like we don't we don't care about this right now you don't know how the world works but now people care and big companies care and you know yesterday i was reading about patagonia and the whole amount of lawsuits that they've been giving to the trump administration um for not following um environmental policies that they really care about you know and it's it's a company acting completely outside of their jurisdiction and out of their market and target segments just to do the right thing which for me gives me hope, gives me hope in humanity. And so yes, there, there are these projections um, about tipping points, which they're linear, but I, my hope is in that if humanity keeps on seeing this here, we're gonna be able to narrow down the curve 
and avoid it. Just by like very slightly, because I have to say we're not great. None of us is great, yeah. but I hope that we can avoid it. Yeah, for sure. And I think um, writers like Steven Pinker and also, I'm not too sure if you're familiar with him, Hans Rolling. Rosling, um, he's a yeah, Swedish yeah. doctor. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, I think, I think what a lot of people don't seem to see, which I don't think is any fault of theirs, which is also something that's perpetuated by the news, which is there's a lot of negativity yeah. that is kind of put out there, right. and I, there's a lot of data to support this. I know there's a scientist, uh, economist rather, that works at the London School of Economics. His name is uh, Richard Layard, and um, all of his economic works is based on happiness and basically he um, looks at the the standard of which um news like positive words and negative words are used yeah. and he kind of tracks it from i think it was the 70s or 80s um and he, and he tracks it till today and you can see there's a, a, like a negative correlation where as time progresses the actual amount of negative language that's used in news and that is perpetuated is 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 on a rapid scale of declining so obviously uh, the amount of positive words is declining so i think there's a lot of reasons why um people kind of are scared because I think the news fear mongers and that's kind of maybe a separate issue of, of how the news operates and how um, maybe is it for the right purpose or is it for a commercial purpose but anyways I, I completely agree with you like there's a lot of um, positive things like I, I think in Hans Rosling's book he says like I think we've brought 50% of people out of poverty in the past 100 years something like that just yeah. just yeah. given the 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 capitalist system even though everyone hails it as a huge negative and there's also a lot of positives like that so i think i completely agree with you there's a lot to be hopeful about and i think um this generation like gen z is the one that will actually bring us more make us more aware of the present and also help us think about the future which is an idea that shashwood and i have been talking about uh just thinking about this whole negative media that's out there i i think that that is there for a reason i don't see it as necessarily bad because like mm. if you see a lot of films uh sure. even on netflix have these dystopian futures of of technology and whatnot but i think mm. they are there because they they are an indicator to humanity because because we have this tendency to see things half the glass half empty so that we we you know like we get back into the present and say, okay, we got to actually do something about this. Because if there was no awareness and, and people did not see the half empty, which does also exist, the, these dangers and, and potential threats to humanity, then everyone would kind of ignore it and, and no action would be taken. So I believe that the news, although there's, there's a lot of negativity on the news, it somewhere does help society move ahead as well. Um, that was one point that, that just came to my mind. But aside from that, when you were speaking, Alex, in relation to uh, the Paris Agreement and, and Patagonia, one thing when I just looked up Paris Agreement news, the first thing I saw was that the U.S. has officially left the Paris yes. Agreement. Oh, left? No, they, they are trying to come back. Okay, see, uh, let me show you the, the what Trump I did. The administration thought. left the Paris Agreement some, some, some years ago. Exactly. Uh, well, this is from 4th November 2020. Oh. Maybe it took them some time. Could be. Yes. So yeah, I think it was a legal stipulation um, that prevented them. Like they withdrew, but they only legally were allowed to leave the agreement as of today, oh. I think. So, but I think, Interesting. I, th I know that Biden has quite a radical green policy, yeah. which he's looking to put in place, which is. Yeah, so hopefully what I read last week is that um, next week, the, the process to get back in it will, will start. So hopefully we'll, we'll start hearing news from him soon. Um, but yeah, definitely. The U.S. should be in it, given the fact that they're one of the highest per capita polluters in the world. So, <laughs> important country to be in it. So, aside from just U.S. politics, because that's yeah. a whole other topic, uh, when you mentioned Patagonia and how there's like companies now trying to advocate for 
the environment and do all these things. Uh, mm-hmm. One argument against that, well, not really argument, but just playing devil's advocate for that, is the idea of greenwashing and how a lot of companies, just to make themselves look uh, good in the face of yeah. the in the face of society, start green uh, washing their companies and start doing all these environmental things just to to hide all the fucked up shit they're doing. And so how do you see that, well, a- any one of you, like how do you see this whole notion of companies trying to to use the CSR initiatives of this 1% uh, or maybe like different countries have different laws, but like a small percent of their profits uh, to, uh, as a way to like greenwash and market to to their, their audience that they're actually doing good stuff. How do you guys see that? This is a great question. Did you wanna, did you wanna start on this, Alex? I, I, I'm happy to go next. Yeah, no, um, if, if you have an idea on how to start, get on it. Yeah, of course. Um, so something I think corporate um, ethics is something that's probably my something I want to specialize in. This is something I'm super interested in, um, and just from just from doing um, a lot of readings on a lot of philosophy in terms of like ethical philosophy, like Aristotle, as well as um, I guess other just um, theories such as utilitarianism, libertarianism, all these sorts of theories. I think um, just taking like a philosophical perspective, like greenwashing, is something that's kind of it's basically a lie, right? It's companies are purporting to be a certain way in the face of making more profits. And so I think it's really a motive. It's it's a motivation. Um, It comes down to what is the company motivated by? And I think from specifically for Patagonia, because I've I've studied them briefly, um, from what I can understand, Patagonia is a company that's been committed to their purpose um, very strongly. And it's been one of the strongest people to abide by their vision statement. Um, I forget what the vision statement is in particular, but I know that, um, in particular, Patagonia's commitment to um, the environment and everything of this sort is something that's actually at some point an industry standard. And I know a lot of companies, especially in the fashion sector, which, by the way, is I think the second biggest polluter um, in the world. Um, I think it is. I think it is quite remarkable. But I know greenwashing as a whole is it is quite a pervasive. Um, it's quite a pervasive issue because. For example, I'm working at a hotel at the moment and a lot of the things that they will do is on the face, they'll have maybe like wooden checking cards. But then when you look at all the back stock, it is all packed in plastic. It is all packed in these things, which is very strange because it's like, well, which one is it? It's like one foot in and one foot out the door. And so I think it comes down to like a very, it comes down to a key motive, which uh, a motivational um, question, which is why are you doing this? And I think this is um, something that I think a lot of businesses need to engage with now, which is can you be for purpose? Can you be for profit or can you be for both? And I, I'm kind of take the view that you can definitely do both, but I guess we can get into that. But I know writers like Alex Edmonds from London School, London Business School have wrote very heavily on this topic. Um, and I can give a few examples maybe later on, but I'll go over to you, Alex. What are your thoughts? Um, I, I really like what, what you're saying. And, and it reminds me when, when we see this case of companies doing really, you know, the right thing, kind of like superlative um, good ethics. And then we see the case of companies doing really bad things. And then we see the case of companies being in the middle and trying to look good, but not always doing the right thing, kind of like uh, trying it and kind of failing within and kind of mm, um, lying to their customers also. I just think of kids and I think of kids in in school. And there's always kind of like the the really good kid that uh, in one area, in one specific area, they can do this amazing. Let's say in PE class, you know, there's a sport kid that, that can do it really good. Then there's the other kid that doesn't even want to do it. He's, he's against it. And then there's the ones in between that, that try and fail. And, and there's many reasons why they try and fail. You know? 
and and it, it gives me an idea of the whole um, of the whole business environment that these companies exist in. And of course, we we can't um, we cannot uh, deny the fact that there's monetary incentives and that uh, in some of these cases, being sustainable is really complicated. So you can you can understand, for example, that in the fashion industry. Um, there's a lot of pollution because the processes that they that they go through to produce clothes and the amount of clothes that are consumed every day um, are way cheaper if done unsustainably. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to work towards sustainability, but we can't blame for companies not being able to do you know something extraordinary. Now, what what is really interesting for me is greenwashing because I think that greenwashing is really the case where you can actually blame them, and I think that what has really a lot to do with it is marketing. Um, the whole the whole sector of marketing, I'm not really fond of. Um, I'm not saying that it's not necessary, and I'm not saying that their studies are not really um, insightful for companies. You know, understanding who you're sending to and 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 what what is the message that you need to communicate. But then when that is used to really generate more sales, and when they they really get on their heads in terms of like, okay, we need to we need to make sure they know this. We need to make sure that this message is gone through. I think you lose sight. I think you lose sight of the product that you really are. And I think you start trying to appear or give an image of what you're not. And in that case, yes, you're lying. But this has a solution. And I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to see some of these processes going forward. And it's just regulation. Regulation and more data and more um, uh, understanding for the customer on what they buy. So for example, nowadays, um, if you go to the supermarket, you have these apps that uh, they, they tell you what a product has, uh, does it come from sustainable sources, is it healthy for you, et cetera, et cetera. And this is information that is outside of the marketing strategy of the company. So it doesn't matter if the company says, this is great for you, you, you scan it with your phone and it says, okay, this is actually really bad for you and comes from really um, pollutant resources or, or whatever. And the fact that this information is being put out and, and, and given to the customer, it's taking weight off marketing. You know, Coca-Cola before they did an ad, and that's all the customer knows about. They they don't know what the product has. They they don't they they, they don't even put the calories in it. If the government of the United States doesn't tell that doesn't put the regulation of of saying that the calories and putting the the, the ingredients in order for most um most uh, what is it like most used to least used within the product or something like that. So all these things are regulations and are things that we have to fight for. Because companies are against it, they beneficiate. They beneficiate. I think that's the word um, from from the customer not having the right information on what they're buying. Because that's when the customer makes mistakes, and the customer making mistakes kind of works towards their benefits. So, so that, that's really something that I'm interested in, and it's marketing and how customers are given information. And I think that it's I think that it's moving forward. I think that we're getting somewhere with this, um, especially now with with the use of data, and especially now with Social media, I'm, I'm sure that most people see social media as kind of like a marketing strategy and it's eating your head and it's making you be more and more addicted to it. But I think a new wave of social media is coming in um, and, and it's more ethical social medias and more um, just social medias for their consumers in terms of like the user will not be the product anymore. I think the user will start being the customer um, which is what we've all wanted for, for some time now. We don't want them to make us addicted to it, um, which I've definitely been there. <laughs> I can't lie. So, so yeah, I hope that the new age of data is, is going to put some changes in this and it's really going to enable customers to think for themselves and make the best decisions for, for themselves.
So hopefully greenwashing will stop because they will call on the BS. Yeah, for sure. So I'd like to add a little bit to that in terms of marketing. How I saw it when you said it's like current marketing campaigns are a lot to do with kind of hiding the truth and then showing this uh, facade to customers so that they, they fall into the trap of buying it. But you're now saying that there's third-party apps that you can use to check information and, and see whether they're saying the truth. And so how I see this is uh, that there is a third-party system that's accountable for this company. And that in itself is a metaphor for how our economic and political system works because all systems somewhere put up this facade. So can there be a data-driven solution that's making these people accountable using the truth? If they can actually measure what's up with these products, with these solutions that these different companies and systems are coming up with and tell the consumer the actual truth, that, that actually flips the, the way uh, companies worked, right? Before it was all centralized and uh, right. the marketing tactic was to push data or push information. But now if it flips, then it becomes, the, the power gets decentralized and the system goes to pulling in. And so when the customer needs it, truly is when that product will show up uh, to the best of that customer's match and ability. So yeah. I do see a lot of hope there um, as well. That, that That's what I was thinking about. Yeah, yeah no, as, as you were saying it, I was thinking of the importance of decentralizing the, the system. Mm. Um, yeah, because sure. the, when they're connected, you know, there's there's incentives there. They can, they can communicate, they can bribe each other. Um, bribe, of course, but yeah. Yeah, so decentralizing the system gives incentives for doing things right and having people come to you instead of you pushing to people. Although, again, playing the devil's advocate, I read this uh, study or like this kind of newsletter from James Clear, where he spoke about how data and information doesn't actually lead to behavior change and that we're more emotional beings, like knowing that something is bad doesn't actually change someone's behavior, even if they, you know, like companies still have this like packaging where they put all that information. But that's not what that's not the first incentive for the customer's uh, decision making. What's first is the, uh, the kind of marketing story that's told all the design aspects, whether that really entices emotional, uh, an emotional response from people. And so then just to play devil's advocate, how do you think a solution where we're using the truth, if we're able to collect data and information about certain, uh, certain decisions impacts on a person, um, if that's not actually going to lead to change in behavior, then what's the point of investing so many resources and gathering this data and trying to convince people when they, when they're at the end of the day, they're just going to take an emotional response and not really give a shit about the truth behind it. Because the truth is something that not most people like. The truth is ugly. The truth, oh, well, can be ugly and can be scary. And so most people just want to hide away from the truth. So how do you guys see that aspect of, of this whole information game? Yeah, for sure. I think for, for me, I, I thought like you, when you guys were having that dialogue, for me, the first thought that I had to, in my mind was cognitive, cognitive dissonance and other cognitive biases that humans are susceptible to, but are completely invisible to. And like there's so many people like Daniel Kahneman who kind of writes about these kind of biases that we have that kind of allow that in certain situations, we kind of just fall into these patterns that we're completely unaware of and yet they're so pervasive. And so I guess an example of this, um, is in Matthew Side's book called Black Box Thinking, which is, I think, a fantastic read. I would encourage all of our listeners and you guys to read it as well. It's essentially the premise of the book is all of our industries are built on this idea that mistakes are bad. And if you make a mistake, 
then you should be punished. And he's and his thesis is essentially that we need to allow an environment to make mistakes because that is the best way to grow. And he kind of goes through all these studies. But to to, to go back on cognitive biases, he kind of talk, he talks about this idea of cognitive dissonance. And if you allow me to go on a little a little storytelling here, I, I talk about this um, man named Derek Blake or Derek Black. Yeah, Derek Black. That's right. And he was the son of a famous uh, Ku Klux Klan member in the United States. And he was basically grown up in this environment um, or surrounded by Ku Klux Klan members and other kind of radical members in America. And then he also ran a lot of rallies when he was like 15, 16, like a very strong leader figure. And his, his, his father recognized him as maybe a potential um, head of the Klan um, when he was younger, because he kind of showed these like really strong beliefs and leadership. Um, anyways, um, as he approached 18, 19, he decided he wanted to go to college, right? And he ended up going to, I think it's South Florida State or something. So really small, small school in Florida. Um, but he wanted to keep a low profile, obviously, because he's a member of the Ku Klux Klan and the son of a famous member. So he didn't want to get his picture, uh, his identity known, but he would post on all the websites and everything. Um, along the way, he made a friend. Um, he was a, a Jewish man. He came from a, a abusive family and kind of was a very um, strong figure, I suppose. And essentially, to cut a long story short, Derek eventually was found out that he was a member. And everyone in the university wanted to expel him because of his ideas, because obviously he's a member of the clan, you know, abhorrent beliefs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and his Jewish friend, his name, his name escapes me, but he did something very interesting, which was instead of kind of looking at his beliefs, um, instead of looking at his beliefs as wrong, he invited him to Friday Shabbat dinners, which is very strange because his whole, his whole, um, his whole essentially school wanted to kick him out. But for some reason, his friend that he made at college, the only friend that was willing to be his friend, decided to say, you know what, even though you're a Ku Klux Klan member, how about you come to my place for dinner every Friday? And he was very cautious because everyone at the university he was at was saying, your ideas are wrong. Your ideas are false. There's no way you're, you are a sane person. And yet his ideas would never change, which is very weird because you would think if you're presented with evidence that you would change your beliefs. So, you know, going over statistical data, um, randomized control trials, all these things. It's like, why, why don't people change their minds even though they have all this evidence? And so eventually, long story short, because he had enough trust in his friend they eventually, he eventually converted his friend out of the Ku Klux Klan. And now he's doing a PhD in like history at something in America. And he's free of the Klan. And he basically left his whole family to live an independent life. But I guess the moral of the story is this guy who grew up his whole life indoctrinated in these ideas was unable for 20 years or so, or I guess he was quite young, let's say just 10 years, was unable to kind of persist um, through the normal normal everyday life, even though he's presented with so much evidence. And so I guess that's just one example that kind of talks about how susceptible we are to data. And even though you live in a society where those ideas are abolished, even, we're still unable to make the decisions that are correct. And so I think just to, I can see you, you want to ask a question, Shashwat, you want to go ahead? Just, just to confirm, are you saying that 
when he was shown with the data, he did not want to change his mind. Yeah. But when he was invited to the Shabbat, and there was this one friend who who offered him um, sort of this this more empathetic uh, uh, invitation, he was he was more susceptible to change. Did I get that right? Yes, that's exactly right. But just a caveat though, he invited him to multiple dinners over the span of two or three months, and then only then he presented him with evidence. So basically, his premise was. With ideas, you have to engage in trust before you try to change someone's mind. Because if you don't trust the person, you could just, you know, it's like why Fox News and CNN is a thing, right? Because Republicans will watch CNN and say, oh, yeah, fake news. And then CNN will watch Sky News and be like, oh, yeah, these guys are just hillbillies. I don't know what they're talking about, you know. But if you trust someone, if you trust someone, then you kind of can change ideas. But I mean, that story is kind of separate to the point, which is, you can be presented with so much information, so much data that is all correct. And on face value, you can absolutely, you can just palm it off to the side and say, you know what? I don't, it's not right. Even though it's, it doesn't make any sense. You know what I mean? So this idea that big data and all these things, which I also agree with just to say, I think that we need more access to data and stuff and that will lead to better decisions. But I think also we have to remember that as a species, we are still, uh, evolving like every other species and we're susceptible to things that we're unconscious of and I, I would say that's kind of my defense to how data may not solve our problems right right alex before you go i'd like to share something which just has been going on in my mind uh, and i see the solution to this whole issue with data being there yet not uh, allowing behavior to change somewhere the solution i see in in the whole philosophy of experiential learning and experiential ed and so that might be confusing to to most listeners but i, I think alex you know i'm i'm pretty obsessed with this whole uh, branch of of how things work and the reason why i say that is so firstly, you spoke about these biases that, that this person had. And I think every single person or, or most people in society have certain biases. The precursor to bias I see as conditioning. And I'm not here to say that conditioning is good or bad. Conditioning does serve us uh, a lot of, for a lot of great purposes, but also does limit us. And so in our last podcast, me and Xavier discussed about this whole human condition being somewhat of a limitation. Uh, and causing a lot of these issues. And so the precursor to bias being being the condition and the way that um, experiential education deals with the human condition uh, is that it says that before you can actually approach a person, if before you can actually deal with a person, whether that's in a classroom or a, or a corporate environment or on a societal level, any hu human interaction, the first thing that you must do or you could do actually is, um, is empathize with the human condition. And that's how I see uh, the story that you mentioned, Xavier, where um, the Jewish friend was was first willing to empathize with this guy's human condition and he was not upfront judgmental and he did not come from his own place of conditioning saying that oh this guy is an asshole i'm not going to speak to him he was saying okay he may have his own conditioning which has turned into a bias which may turn into bigotry but i'm still willing to empathize with this guy's condition and build trust and build this human connection that's more genuine uh, and, and that invites safety not just physical safety but intellectual emotional social safety where this guy was feeling like all alone in this college where everyone thought he was an an asshole he found this ray of hope who, who was willing to say that i still i st even though aside from your beliefs i still empathize with you and invite you to these events and so that's what experiential ed does he, it says that in any environment and in any human interaction before you actually get into the objective stuff before you actually start trying to change other people's minds something that you must do before is build a safe environment so that people are not uh, spending their energy uh, defending themselves and being closed off to other perspectives, but rather can feel safe to open themselves up to be more vulnerable and, and 
uh, accept new ideas or at least consider new ideas that they may, that they may come across. And so it comes down to the value that we've been talking about. Me and Alex and, and Xavier, you as well, we've just been speaking about balance. And so th even though we may have objective data and all that stuff um, to, to convince people, we cannot forget that we're emotional beings and the subjectivity of things are super important as well. And so if we can find a balance where the, the story side of things, the emotional side of things uh, are considered uh, as well as the, the data and the objective side. And if we are able to mix those up and create a better story that, that truly touches human beings, is able to first empathize with the, the human condition, then I believe that that is the way forward. So yes. that's, that's my spiel. But Alex, now I'll let you go ahead. Um, no, I just, I just wanted to make a really quick comment. You said three words, well, four words, but three concepts that um, <laughs> I think I, they, they just follow my same thought path. Um, so, so you, you spoke about human conditions, stories, and safety, and and I think it's it's super interesting because um, well, Yuval Noah Harari says in Sapiens that that we are super um, gods with the body of monkeys, and and it's it's true. I mean, we are capable of doing such complex um, processes and and mental processes, also kind of like understandings, but we're still limited by our evolutionary conditions, the, the human condition, you know, we have emotions which make it complicated to debate and, and discuss and reach conclusions. And uh, for example, even race has given us a problem, something as simple as race, like that is not even, you know, it, it doesn't put any walls or anything. It doesn't make things more complicated, but just the fact that there's human condition and then it's different on each one of us, puts us walls that we have to face. And these walls, um, as you say, Sashua, I mean, we wish they weren't there, right? We wish we were kind of just computer chips and, and we could just flow without condition and expand ourselves infinitely. But at the same time, uh, it's what makes the whole experience so beautiful. It's what makes it so complex. And at the same time, solving this you know, complex mystery is, is I think one of, one of the great things about life and one of the, the great mysteries that we should pursue. And speaking about you know, solving human condition, you were speaking about safety. And this is highly related to what Xavier was talking about before in terms of like, when do we take in data? You know, I've always said that learning is, is a voluntary process. And the way that we do it right now, kind of like pushing it forward on, on the kids, like open your mouth, it's the textbook. That, that doesn't work. I don't think that works out. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think that the person, <laughs> uh, I, I think that, that really any person in the world, when they learn is when they want to learn. And when they don't want to learn, what they are doing when you try to make them learn is simply build a stronger world wall in front of them that is going to avoid them being able to learn in the future. Um, and we see that in math. There's people that just hate math. And it's because they, they never let them enjoy math and learning voluntarily. So, so you, you were speaking about safety. And um, Norway, I'm, I'm not sure if you guys have heard, but their educational system is really, really interesting in terms of that they um, motivate the intrinsic safety of the kid at a really early age. So basically they delay the whole process of learning and they just focus on the kid building, um, you know, self, um, um, like, uh, self esteem. Uh, uh, I don't know what's the word. It's coming out in Spanish. Whatever. Self, they just, self they development? Make sorry, sorry? Self development? Yes, but no, I'm, I'm saying, I'm, I want to say like the kid being comfortable with More himself. Emotional, emotional development, that's how I see it. Yes, yes, yes. Kind of letting the kid, but especially on the terms of safety. You know, yeah. when, when they, they, 
many, many psychologists, I've heard them speak, the Norwegian psychologists and French psychologists speaking about the Norwegian system, they have found out that the kids, when they lack safety, emotional safety, um, in their early years, then that creates a wall that uh, makes them not be able to develop in the future, you know? So, the, so in the first years of their life, they're really focusing on the kid, you know, go outside, play with your friends, feel comfortable being in a social environment, feel comfortable not being with your parents, feel comfortable being with your parents, feel comfortable being alone and by yourself and not having anyone on top of you telling you what to do, you know? And once the kid feels comfortable in the environment of life and just doing simple things, then they let the kid learn. Because then the, the, the kid is learning in a much more motivated and engaging way. So this whole process, and that, that's why I think the three words that Sachin said are really relevant um, for everything that we're saying, is that playing with human condition, enabling safety within people feeling safe within their human condition, um, that is the basis for storytelling and, and story communication. Because as you said, data is not the main factor for, um, that influences people's decisions. And it's true, but it's the first factor. You first need to know, okay, what do we need to do in terms of like, let's construct an environment or incentives that, that let people do that. You know, that's in any, really in any field, you first do the research, you first, you first reach the conclusions, and then you try to apply those to the real world, which is much more confusing and complex. And so where it really comes down to is the story. You get the data and you, you make a story for it. And we've seen this everywhere. You know, we were speaking about marketing. Marketing is a story. Um, any, any like Hans Zimmer or any Steven Pinker book that, that talks about the development of humanity, they're, they're using data, but the, what they're really telling you is the story of humanity and how positive it could be, you know? And in some ways it's kind of biased because when you tell a story, you're, you're not saying the data how it is. You're saying the data in a way that it comes through the senses in a nice way, kind of like it feels safe. Um, and yeah, that's all I wanted to say. We need to play with stories. We need to do research and find out the data, but then we need people that are able to make the stories. And that's why I love Sasha because I can't do stories myself. I'm not, I'm not for it. Hey, Shashwat, I can see you like you really want to ask a question, but I also really want to ask a question. Now I'm confused. So do you want to go ahead? So I don't do want to ask a question. I just want to add to that and give like a sort of background of how I see these things. Sure. So like you said, Norway as, a, as an education system, I, I think both of you know, I also come from a very different educational background. It's called Waldorf Education, started by the self-proclaimed esoteric guy called Rudolf Steiner, who was this Austrian philosopher. And he says these three things for child development. For the first seven years of the life, the child needs goodness. For the second seven years of the life, the child needs beauty. And for the third seven <laughs> years of the life, the child needs truth. And so if the systems in parenting and schooling, this can be followed, then I think child development is more susceptible to, to being open to new ideas, to tell stories, to be able to create art. I mean, the whole problem with data, I, I mean, I think that we currently live in an information reality. What we perceive is just a bunch of information, but we don't actually see everything. What we see is bits and chunks of it that our mind ties in together using language and stories. And we see our reality or our life as, as a kind of story, as a form of art. And so so that's why Rudolf Steiner says that art must become the lifeblood of the human soul. He focuses a lot on uh, music, on art, on, on all these like um, artistic capabilities in the first, first few years of the development and not too much intellectual. He says avoid intellectual till, uh, until like the child is seven years old. So I, I first learned ABCD when I was in like second grade or first grade, which might sound bizarre to a lot of people. But I think it's, it's, it's how it works. Like if you are more emotionally uh, developed in the early ages, then you one is more likely to be susceptible to information and, and tying in stories and, and perceiving things and being more curious uh, about the truth when one, one, one grows up.
So that's that. Those were some of my thoughts in relation to what you said. But Xavier, you go ahead now. Yeah, no, I, I, I like, I, I think Steiner schools, like the idea of Steiner schools, are very interesting. I've never gone to one, but my both my siblings have gone to them. Um, although not at a young age, so I can't say um, mm. the, the impact has been, I guess, long lasting because it was only for a short period of time. But I think um, what you were talking about, Alex, in terms of like um, and Shasha, like conditioning and kind of um, the experiences that you form kind of inform your reality and all those things. I, I think that's something that the education system is doing very poorly. And I think we can kind of maybe get into what's wrong with the education system and maybe, maybe why Norway's doing it right and why the West is doing it wrong or maybe even India. Um, but one thing that I really am passionate about is, and something that you brought up, Alex, is giving kids or even just people an environment to, to learn in and an environment that they want to voluntarily participate in. Because in my mind, if if you have an environment where school is mandatory, in my mind, it is not even about learning. It is about reciting facts to skeletons. Because yeah. they have no, and also I also think it is like a motivational question when you force people to do something, for some reason in our psychology, we have some sort of resistance to it, it which is, yeah, it's really strange, right? Um, but another thing I'm also really passionate about is mistakes and giving them the space to learn. And this is something that I've talked about in the, the book before, Black Box Thinking. And he, the author talk, takes us through an example of the healthcare system. And basically he talks about how he compares it to the aviation industry. So he talks about how the healthcare system is very anti-mistakes. It is very, it punishes people if they do wrong. For example, surgeons, there's a lot of negligence cases in case law, um, and then if you look at the aviation industry, if someone makes a mistake, the plane crashes, 200 people die instantly. So you can't be, you can't be so harsh on in the aviation industry because people's lives are at stake in a different way in which people's lives are at stake in the healthcare industry. So what they do very well in the aviation industry is they praise mistakes because if you spot a mistake, you may prevent people from dying in a plane crash. Whereas in, medical, in, in the medical industry, if people make mistakes, instead of pointing to the doctor and saying, okay, maybe there's something wrong with the processes, they say, you went to school for 10 years. How can you make a mistake? You're an idiot. Which is really strange because isn't the whole purpose of learning to be better, but for some reason we've conditioned right. ourselves that making mistakes is incorrect and you're wrong. And if you don't know it, you're bad or you're dumb or et cetera, et cetera. Right? And so they actually go through a hospital and they test this ideas of not not criticizing mistakes, but praising them and then improving processes like at a hyper level. And they did this at a hospital in America. Um, I forget the hospital, but essentially they applied that principle of praising mistake and improving processes. And the results were like astounding. Um, essentially what had happened is that hospital in particular had the lowest amount of uh, accidental fatalities in whole of the United States because they worked on a system that focused on praising mistakes and working on processes instead of um, demonizing mistakes and ignoring processes. And it's so fascinating because I think this idea and concept can be applied to every industry. It can apply to the corporate industry. It can apply to, um, I don't know, other industries, but most importantly, education, because I've come from an education background where I've had teachers that have been very, very discouraging. And then I had one teacher that kind of gave me that room to make mistakes and learn, and that's all right. And then I kind of was allowed to grow. And I can't even imagine how many kids out there have teachers that are uh, very harsh on people. and They don't allow them to make mistakes, kind of what you were saying, Shashua. You have to let kids be comfortable in what you were saying, Alex. You have to kind of leave them room to grow before you kind of bombard them with these intellectual notions like alphabets and algebra and whatever. 
before right. you can actually, you know, do all these things. Anyways, that was kind of something I was, I was, um, I was bottling up inside, but I think maybe we can, we can discuss something more about this. If, if there's a thought. I, I yes, I, I'd like to add to that. And I see a transition into this idea of utopias now. Yes, so firstly, sure. this whole idea of making mistakes and, and this uh, notion of creating a safer environment for, for learning to happen. That is true in the education sector. And that's where I started getting most passionate about these systems and wanting to bring about a sort of change because I saw such a great system. And then I saw this conventional system that was more like centralized and these teachers being assholes and pushing it, pushing information down students' throats. Uh, at, at one point in my life, in, a, in one boarding school, I felt like I was in a in a Russian uh, concentration camp. So I believe that these, these, these systems are actually very, very common across society, whether that's education or corporations, healthcare, um, marketing, all these things, or even on an economic and political level. That's where Alex showed me that the story is not very different, even on a societal level where power is centralized and uh, it's a top-down approach to bring order from chaos, which doesn't work. What actually seems to be working more, which the complexity theory says, is that if we can create systems that are bottom-up, where the people are empowered to take action rather than uh, demonized for making mistakes, right? That this is the whole concept of the growth mindset by Carol S. Dweck. She says that uh, uh, schools and systems that focus more on the outcome uh, tended to have students that were more fixed-minded, whereas um, schools that were promoting more mistakes and focusing more on the process of learning and growing um, tended to have growth mindset. And so this whole idea of mistakes and, and trying to be perfect relates to this idea of utopia in a general sense, right? And so this whole notion of utopia being now, like, firstly, are we ever going to be perfect? There's this whole idea of, can we ever not make mistakes? And my, my answer to that would be like, no, we are beings that will always be imperfect. We will never be able to perceive the entire truth or the objective truth of reality. We will only see a small portion of it. And so we will be, our conditioning will come into our conduct through a thin layer of consciousness where we tend to make mistakes. But now if we consider this like, oh, this is bad and, and you must keep improving and the focus is more just on the outcome, then that creates a more of a fixed mindset but if the the solution was more or the focus was more on the process which is that utopia or the perfection that you're seeking is here and now then i see that as quite a different shift to the way things work and so alex i'm curious to now ask you what motivated you to come up with this name utopia is now and not something in the future given that all these problems that we've been speaking about across society across all these different industries education blah 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 there's so many things that are are not perfect that that, that are problematic and are detrimental to society so what makes you say that utopia is here and now and not someplace in the future right um so there's there's kind of a physics background or kind of like a physics idea that, that, that comes in place, which I'm not going to give time to. But um, basically, if we think about it, let's not think about it in terms of utopia is now, which I'm, I'm going to go in, 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 in a few minutes. But um, let's, let's think about it in terms of utopia can be now. So if you consider utopia, um, if you consider it with the street Greek meaning of no place, then it's somewhere that doesn't even exist. So we shouldn't even consider it. Now, if you're going to consider it as a real objective and something that we could achieve, then you're going to define it as kind of like the, per the perfect version of, of reality or society, human. This perfect version or whatever um, we're trying to, to build towards, as you said, it's, it's not real within or it's not possible within the physical realm of humanity. 
because we're always imperfect. There's always something else that, that we could be improving. This is what, what just as we're, we're speaking about. Now, given the fact that we will never be able to be perfect, what is the best shoot we have? What is, what is the best shot that we have at, at being the best version of ourselves? And, and that is in constant construction. You know, you, you will never be there. Like you can always be a little better than before. So, so the whole idea of utopias now comes from looking at society, you know, re reading all these writers that we, we've been speaking about that, that give some notion in terms of how things, well, we have been generating problems, but how things are better now than they've been before, ever before, a lot better, and how this has been a process. It's not something that has been given to us. It's something that we have fought for. We have put so many lives at stake and so much, so many minds in the process to be able to generate solutions that make our world better today than it was before because we've solved our problems. So this process of solving your problems, this process of moving forwards towards a better future, um, I think that is the only utopia we can achieve, really. Because if perfection is unachievable, then the only, the best possible society that can exist is a society that is constantly trying to be the best form of itself, right? So now, if we think about utopia can be now, then this, this would be the explanation, right? Utopia can be now as long as we are fighting, as long as we unite in terms of um, creating solutions and fighting against the entropy that is, that is bringing us down. You know, at any point could come a meteorite and crash against Earth and, and extinct uh, everything that, that we've done in the past. So we need to be ready for whatever is at stake you know, and not only are we each other, like each one of us, um, are we are problems for each other because we fight and, and we discuss. Not only that, we have outside factors. So, so as long as we try to do it um, as a whole, try to fight for a better world, um, that is the best possible version that, that we can be. So utopia could be now. Now, why I think utopia is now, not in terms of like, we could be there if we were fighting. Like, I do believe that we are fighting nowadays. It's not because of what I see, because I do have to say that I see a lot, lots of mistakes or what I consider mistakes myself. But in here comes um, kind of like a more deep or philosophical concept that is related to everything being everything since the Big Bang. And this is something that Sasha and I have been discussing for a while. It's a concept that we really like. I'm actually getting a tattoo in a couple of weeks that hopefully will we'll describe this. Um, and, and so basically it, it comes down to the fact that the particles that are in the universe now and, and everything that has been created and all the you know, behaviors and, and laws that, that have been created in the universe, there's simply a transformation of the energy that was generated in the Big Bang. So it's basically the same thing, but it has transformed through the process of entropy. It has uh, created more and more possibilities for, for being. Now, <clears throat> this means that the the, the whatever mm, physical interactions or physical behaviors happen at the, at the very start, they led to this point. And whatever physical interactions that are happening right now in the present are gonna lead to the future. So this leaves no room for error. It, things are in the way that they are. Because if, if it could have been in any other way, it would have been that way. So it's kind of like the whole process of like, if, if you, um, what is that pendulum called? But if you have the, the pendulum that, that you throw one ball and it hits the other one, you know where the last one is going to go. You can predict that behavior in the same way that you can predict the orbital path of any star in, in, in the galaxy. Um, and it's because it just follows simple rules that were created from a simple basis, which is kind of like perfect. So it's a close, perfect system. And, and that's how I see it. 
and this is a this is a topic we can we can spend a lot of time discussing but basically if things can only be in the way they are we are in the only way we could be right now and all the mistakes that we're making and i would really like the conversation that we're having because it's strictly related to this all the mistakes that we're making and, and all the problems that have happened throughout humanity they had to happen for us to discover all the good things that will come after and something that is really interesting for me um which is related to this but it, it's just a, a little story that i'm going to tell um it, it, i who, who told this i think it was i think it was you will know her i sapiens he speaks um, about the formation of the three main religions that guide the world right now. Um, so, so the their um, their speakers, their main speakers was for, for the for the Western religions. It was Abraham, all the Abrahamic religions, um, and then for for the Southeast Asian religions, it was Buddha and everything that generated. And in in the rest of Asia, it was Confucius, especially for China, um, the, the Confucianism. These three people existed in a period of time of only, I think, about 1,000 years. So humanity has been existing for thousands and thousands. And we can say that modern, the modern Homo sapiens has been existing for over 20,000 years. Only 1,000 of them generated the specific people that have created a change in, in the thinking and that have created the movements that, that have moved the, the world. and. and and, and whole civilizations, different civilizations that have created wars, just three guys that existed in, in, in the span of 1,000 years, and they were never connected, but their ideas were super similar. And what's more similar to me, I, what's more interesting, sorry, is the fact that um, they went through the same process. Each one of them came from a wealthy family, so each one of them had some kind of, of good education, and each one of them left their home or their hometown to be in nature for a long time, and at some point, starved in the process. And I do believe that there's, there's some connection in there, in the starvation, in the having some background knowledge, and in the leaving everything behind, that, that gave them kind of this, this epiphany on, on how things should be, you know? And I think that the process that they went through, I think that many people have gone through this process throughout human history. It's just that they were at the right time, in the right place to communicate the story. Um, and, and so that really says something about how things are happening when they can happen. You know, these, these three people could have not existed before previously because maybe society wasn't developed to the point that they could learn the, the specific concepts that made them create these ideas. And the fact that they all happen simultaneously in different parts of the world, it means that the world was advancing at the same pace. And we're now seeing this with globalization. You know, we're seeing countries that there were... Um, they were in the past before and now they're, they're coming up economically. And it's, it's all about how are we interpreting this process? Are we gonna fight again against what is, is inevitable? Are we gonna interiorize it? Are we gonna accept about the, the whole process that we are in? It's, it's, it's like you are just this one piece of a motor and regardless of if you want it or not, like it is what it is, it is what you are. So are you gonna do the best out of it or are you gonna try to fight against it and, and break the motor? You know, and I think that each one of us needs to try to be their, the, the best little piece and contribute in, in, the most, in the most efficient way. I'd like to take this to another tangent and give a philosophical twist to utopia, although you've been, you've been speaking about this, which is the idea of utopia is, is how I see it is, is the, the pursuit of infinity. 
And infinity is what I, I, I think of as God. These guys that you mentioned, Alex, all of them were trying to seek the same truth, which is what is going on? What is the core of reality? What is this ultimate? They were able to perceive this truth and, and then they were able to break that down in a way which was... Um, which society could use to live a better life, a better lifestyle. But essentially, what they all, what all these guys were talking about in terms of um, utopia or, or God, is that God is here and now. The truth or or what is real is here and now. And so there's this quote in relation to utopia is on the horizon. I move two steps closer; it moves two steps further away. I walk another ten steps, and the horizon runs ten steps further away. As much as I may walk, I'll never reach it. So what's the point of utopia? The point is, uh, the point is this, to keep walking. And how I see this, so this quote is by Eduardo Galeno, and how I kind of make sense of this is that the pursuit of utopia is the pursuit of infinity. And the point of an infinite game is not to win or lose, but instead the point is to keep the game going. That's a plan. And that goes, that goes on to this whole notion of being in the present, focusing more on the, on the journey. But that's not to say that there is not another side of the coin. This is where Taoism comes in and says there is always a black or a white. Dystopia and eutopia. Dystopia being worse, eutopia being better. And the center, which, which all these, the, the, the Taoist philosophy talks about, is the balance between the two which is uh you could call utopia which is no place but it, the paradox of this is that it's it's every place it's always yet no place so it may sound confusing but i believe that once a person is able to hold these contraries and play with these paradoxities in the head it kind of brings about this profound shift in the way we see things and it's quite i would believe it's quite a mystical experience to be able to experience these contraries at the same time and realize that utopia is actually here and now and i could see the glass half empty as dystopian which is only telling me to be better but essentially i am always in the center that's that's the whole goal of nature to to come back to homeostasis like a pendulum it, the goal is to always come back to the center you will never be in the center you will always be more towards one side or the other. So it's in dystopia or utopia. So but, it's like that math tangent, right? We're always getting closer to it, but never to it. And so the, the point is, is that, okay, so we're always there. Exactly. The thing is, it, you will never reach the balance, but you are always in some balance. So we've always been in utopia. We've always been in the perfect version of reality. And we'll always be, or at least that, that we know of in, in the future. And this lives a blank page for you to say, okay, so what do I want to do with this? Where do I want to take this? It is up to me. If I am part of utopia, you know, what is my step? And I think this is the beauty, the beauty in, in living in, in, in the world and the world that we live in right now gives us so many possibilities. So yes, unluckily I have to live right now, but I think uh, you guys are amazing people and I love this conversation. And uh, I'm really happy that, that you're awesome. <laughs> I, I, have you posted the, the previous episodes before? Not yet. We're we're gonna do a couple of them together and then post it all together at once. But well, let me know. Let me know when they're up because I, I I want to listen to your conversations and I, I want to be part of your community. It's really interesting. And if you're gonna be discussing things like this, you're gonna have me knocking on the door. <laughs> <laughs> That's the whole point. The invitation's always open, right? That's what we believe in. Not to force anyone, but to invite and see what happens. Yeah, for sure. Self-organization, my friend. Yeah, man. Yes. I think I was wondering, Alex, do you have a time for a very quick last question? Um, I know I, I don't want to keep you too long, but maybe um, something I was thinking about is, and maybe I, this is maybe a, a hard question to ask in a, such a brief response, but 
something I was curious of, if we could create Utopia here and now, what is maybe an idea or something that you think you would like to implement in that Utopia or something that you'd oh. like to see? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, was, I was hoping this was not the question. <laughs> this is a whole new other podcast episode. Yeah. I yes, I'm sure it is. I can give you a summary. I can yeah, for sure. For a couple minutes more. Um, so, so before, at the start of the episode, when I was saying that I developed this, this idea that I spoke to Sashua, it was my, my perspective in terms of like, so anyone, everyone needs to be part of making Utopia. That is the thing. And everyone has their own interests and specialties. And my specialty or kind of like what I want to be part of is in the creation of systems or organization of systems. So there's, there's many parts of, uh, of society that, I mean, infinite parts of society that would have to be improved. But the one that is most relevant to me is the way that we organize um, and, and collaborate um, within this organization. And so that is why I, I study economics because I, I ended up realizing, realizing that any interaction, any like this interaction by itself um, is what generates solutions. You know, a, a single person by themselves not doing anything is hardly going to reach any solution at all. At least you need an interaction with a book or a piece of material, anything really, or just nature itself. So it's really from interacting that, that we can create new solutions or, or new things. And, and I started thinking, okay, so how can, how can we do these interactions better? Because from what I'm seeing in the world right now, businesses are interacting in a very competitive way. In the, in the business sector, you are interacting with your colleagues in a very competitive way. And so the, the type of interaction that we're having nowadays, like right now here in this call, it's not so common outside in the real world. And I, I wanted to enable an environment, as we were talking about before, that, that enables you to be free, to learn freely, to learn voluntarily, to produce value when you want to produce value and to produce value in the things that you would like to produce value in. Not to have kind of like a robotic mechanic job of doing the same thing eight hours a day, five days a week, because that is monotonous and it really tears down the, 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 the human spirit, as, as I would call it. So from thinking that I would like to follow my passion, um, I ended up kind of ideating a, an economic collab collaboration system. Um, I'm not sure how, how to call it yet, but it's basically with the use of data um, and a really, really expanded use of data uh, and with the use of, of economic theory, basic economic modeling, you can find out the basic economic factors for pretty much any interaction, so demand and supply. Um, and it, it comes down to products, but uh, you could expand this to, for example, knowledge or, or information. Um, it still has demand and supply and, and it has costs and benefits. So, so once you can quantify those values, and at the start you would, you would do it in a very simple way, like quantifying, for example, simple products. Um, but then you can, as I'm saying, you can move on forward, you can quantify the environment, you can quantify human lives. You can pretty much quantify anything if you have enough data for it. Um, once you start quantifying value, then you can create a way more free system of value interaction and value generation. So if, if we could have a system that understands when am I creating value for society, then I can just pursue my interests, I can pursue my passions and, and do whatever I want with it. So create art or I can write down or, or do a podcast like you guys are doing. And if the system is quantifying the amount of value that I'm generating, that can be my new job. 
And that can be my new job for a day or a week. And when I get tired of it, I can move on to something else. I can follow my, my instinct, whatever is calling me. Because if you have a job that is always the same and you're being paid for whatever, everyone is losing. Because not only is the, employee, is the employer losing in terms of like, okay, they, they have a horrendous job and, and it's low paid, but the, the, the business is losing too. Because as, as we were saying before, people learn better and more when they are engaged and people do better and produce better stuff when they are motivated and, and engaged. And when, when a company is hiring a person and has them on a regular salary, that person ends up not being motivated. So what, what we've seen in startups, for example, is that um, giving completely uh, freedom to, to your employees and giving prizes, for example, instead of, um, instead of having a fixed salary or even motivating through not money. Like money is, is said to be one of the least engaging factors in, in employee um, performance. So really, it's not about the money, the reason why people work. People, okay, people work because they need the sufficient means to, to carry on with their lives. But, but in truth, when people are working on something that doesn't get paid, then they're not doing it for the money. They're doing it for the passion, for, for the, the thrive of, of doing whatever you believe in and creating solutions that you truly can be proud of. And so I think that we need to um, join those, those two points, the economic system with the passion of the human body. And that can be done through really extensive data gathering and data use and then economic modeling of all the parts. But it's basically going extra capitalistic to, to enable freedom, which is, sounds, sounds very uh, opposite, but it's really not. So let me kind of like summarize that quickly because a lot of those things can seem quite dystopian and confusing. First thing you mentioned is interaction. Everything is always interacting with one another. And on a philosophical level, the universe is interacting with itself through the other right so that's on one level the next thing you spoke about is kind of measuring things and that can also seem kind of dystopian and like what the hell what is this guy saying like why would you reduce uh, people to a number what happens to the subjective experience of people but the way i see this is that everything that is going on around us reality the fabric of reality is essentially coded and i don't mean this in like a you could think of it in a simulation theory kind of way but what i mean is that even our genetic information every single thing is data and information and so if we can capture as much data as possible about the code that or, or the laws of reality that help reality function then that code could be used to to make better decisions and so in a way how i see alex saying this is that if we could have a system uh, an economic system that would kind of work like karma where karma objectively uh, kind of values or remunerates value to to things that are objectively better actions and deteriorate right. when it's, it's negative right. right if there could be a currency that was like karma then people could actually pursue their passions and get paid for it i, I know that in today's day and age we uh, i'm sure all of all of us have like these passions that that we really want to pursue but then there's this inner conflict that says that oh but like society expect me to do these other things uh, because right. if i'm not able to do this i'm not going to be able to survive i'm not going to be able to make enough money and and be happy so it's like this do I do this or that? But the solution that I see Alex is talking about is a bridge between the two, where you can do what you love doing every single day and be remunerated for that. And the same happens when, if it's causing destruction in society, if corporations are causing destruction to the environment, to the people, then they must also pay for the damages they're causing. And so that's how I would kind of summarize the system or the solution that Alex is, is speaking about. Yeah, so yeah, I, I completely forgot about mentioning the, the most important part, which is that if you're measuring everything 
the whole point is to measure uh, to me measure impact. Um, so so yes, and this is something that many economists are considering right now, um, which is what if we could quantify real value in in all categories. I'm not I'm not speaking on monetary value, but it's real value that goes down to the customer. Um, and, and they're speaking to the customer because they, they're talking about products, but I go beyond. What if you could quantify the value that you generate for society? And when you do the positive impact, you get remunerated. When you do negative impact, you need to pay for the costs. And this would lead to a way more you know, free environment in which things are not obligated, nor are they illegal or kind of like you, you can't do them. You can do whatever you want. You're just going to pay for the cost. And at the same time, you can do whatever you want in life and you're going to pay for anything good that you, that you do. And I do believe that, that that would lead to a more voluntary environment in terms of, you were speaking about the story before, you know, and, and if you tell someone this is illegal, well, most likely they're going to do it. At least I, I'm going to consider doing it. You know, I'm going to be like, okay, so why is it illegal? Why do you not want me to do this? What can I do with this? <laughs> that you don't it's how want nature me. works, man. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. That, that's how I see it. And you were saying how every interaction energy is just being transformed. That's just another law of physics. That energy can neither be created nor destroyed. It only keeps on transferring through interactions of physical matter. And so if right. we could measure that, that interaction, how energy is transferred uh, and and you have an economic system that is actually uh, showing the true transformation of energy everywhere, which is obviously a really big uh, utopian kind of dream and, and seems like very idealistic and whatnot. I still do believe we're already going there with so many technological right. advancements, with big data, IoT yeah. systems, singularity. All these things are eventually going to allow us to, to create a system, an economic system, which replicates nature and which is able to measure everything that's happening in nature and, and create an economy that is always flowing. And so in that sense, this pandemic uh, would not actually cause so many political and economic issues. It would naturally help uh, society and market forces and, and people interact in better ways um, so that, that things came back to homeostasis more quickly. So that, that's how I kind of see this, this idea. But I think we've, we've gone quite a lot over this thing mm -hmm. and we can transition to the end. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If, yeah, for sure. Well, thank you for answering the question, Alex. I know that was <laughs> uh, probably a hard question to answer, like really short. But um, I think all these ideas in and of themselves can be separate podcasts. But I just want to say thank you so much for coming. Like oh, Shasha said before, like we would love to have these discussions more again with you because I know there's like so many ideas that we all were like buzzing to talk about. But I guess yeah. for the sake of <laughs> sake of not, not sitting here for like 24 hours, I'd like to say, you know it's probably best we keep that for a separate time but I'd like to say thank you so much no thank you thank you it, it is it is really an honor to be here and and all i value in life is finding people like you who, who are thinking about these things and want to discuss these things so yeah definitely in the future if you want me here i'll, I'll be here Fantastic. i'd like to say to to finish it off that this in itself is an infinite game worth pursuing and uh, what we can hope to do is find the others like timothy leary would say <laughs> to, to make this dream come alive so I really do hope that other people are inspired by, by the things we're talking about and want to uh, become a part of this journey that we're, we're, we're kind of taking.